0: Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kissinger. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is a journalist and
1: the author of this brilliant book, The Status Game, Will still Welcome to Trigonometry. Thanks for having me. Uh, the word I was also looking for is best-selling author and <laughs> my brain sort of malfunctioned, but you are in fact, this is your sixth book as you were just telling us. Yeah, yeah. Before we get into the show... Tell everybody a little bit about who are you, how are you, where you are, what has been your journey through life that leads you to be sitting here talking to us?
2: Well, um, I, obviously, I'm a writer. I've been a journalist for about 20 years, uh, you know, just, just over 20 years now. Um, and I've been writing books, uh, yeah, since I was in my mid-20s. And, and, and I've always been interested in, you know, what makes people tick, um, you know, what drives people, what makes people believe kind of crazy, irrational things. And, that, and that, that's, def, that's been the theme throughout my a lot of my journalism and certainly my books.
1: Yeah, well, yes, indeed, and what, you know the status game seems to me to be going to the very fundamentals of what makes us tick. Yeah, uh, we were talking before we started about our former guest, Dr. Mike Martin, who wrote a book called "Why We Fight," which is all about testosterone and the desire to seek status and all of that. So, for anyone who's uninitiated, unfamiliar with this subject, what is the status game? Well,
2: um, the, the status game is the, is the subconscious reality of human social life. That, that, that's how I see it. You know, the, w- w- lots of my previous books, I, I've been focusing on the conscious experience of life, which is a story. Like The brain processes reality and turns our life into a story. And we're the hero at the centre of our lives. And we're surrounded by this cast of characters. And we're on these amazing missions. And, you know, so, so, so that's, that's why we tell stories in the way that we do, because we're making these neural processes and in this book I wanted to wanted to sort of take it a bit further and go okay so if if the conscious reality of life is a story what's going on subconsciously what's the truth and so the status game is 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 my attempt at answering that question like what's really going on under under the hood and and I think a lot of a lot of human social life is, is about two things so connection and status so so because of our tribal evolution we're compelled to Um, connecting to groups of like-minded people, and then once we're in those groups, compete for status.
0: And we see that all the way through our society. And in particular, one of the things that you focused on was virtue, people competing to be the most virtuous. Absolutely,
2: so yeah to kind of, I think to understand this you 've got to sort of understand where you know, where the kind of this, the status game comes from, and that 's in our tribal evolution. Mm. you know Dr. Mike Martin talks a lot about kind of dominant status, which is the, which, is the, which is the oldest kind of form of status, very probably and we 've been competing for status with dominance since we were before we were human you know it 's fighting it's threat it's, it's violence um, it 's bullying ostracization, all those kinds of things, but once we settled down and started living in you know communities. Um, Competing with violence wasn't very useful, so we had to, you know, evolve new ways of competing for status. And those news, new new ways were, were, were all about kind of group life. And so what happened was we started competing for status with the reputation. And um, the way you earn status rep- with reputation is you prove that, prove that you are valuable to your group. You're useful to your group. And there are two ways of being useful to your group. One of the ways is by being virtuous, so generous uh, and selfish and courageous in battle, but also following rules and enforcing the rules when other people <laughs> don't, you know, don't follow them. And then the other way, the hardest way, is success by being competent, by being, um, you know, a fantastic, uh, you know, storyteller, um, hunter, honey finder. But, 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 yeah, I think I think what we're going to be talking about today is is a lot of that kind of virtue status because we're not used to thinking of of connecting virtue and status. But of course, they're completely linked. Mother Teresa is a superstar. The Pope is a superstar. You know, people see people like Michelle Obama as this kind of virtuous superstar. You know, it's not really about competence with these kinds of characters. It's all about their their kind of virtue.
0: And people have been exploiting that, like you said, from time immemorial. You know, if you think about the scribes, the Pharisees, people like that, people who position themselves as being virtuous. But it's not always religious people now who are trying to be virtuous.
2: No, no. I mean, you know, this urge to have um, status from virtue is built into us. You know, we all have it to a certain degree. I mean, of course, we're all on the spectrum. Um, And, you know, I think it's really interesting in this kind of post-religious Society we've got now, because for you know for, for, for centuries and longer, um, religion was the way that we that, that we principally yearned status. Even people in very kind of low low caste groups before the industrial Revo- Re- revolution, um, I- I- you know, the, the, if they were like a you know a peasant working on a farm, they could still feel like they had status because they were a good Christian and they were doing all those good Christian things. And now that's declining, people still want to pursue virtue status, especially the ones that haven't really got what it takes to <laughs> achieve the competence forms of status. And, and, and I certainly see that playing out you know, a lot online, a lot in social media, and a lot in what we think of as cancel culture. Well,
1: before we get into that, I, I actually, I think your book and your work is so much more fascinating than just a conversation about the culture wars. Mm. Uh, Francis and I've always been interested in talking to evolutionary psychologists and biologists and various people about some of the underlying stuff that makes humans who they are. So let's start by talking about yeah. that. And let's talk about bullying, a word that you just mentioned. I've never thought about it. But as we were waiting for you to come, I was sort of thinking, what is the social function of bullying, because it exists in every society, I think, pretty yeah. much. Mm. So there must be some purpose to it. And is that is that for the majority or certain people to assert their dominance so that they become higher status? Is that what it's about? Yeah,
2: I, I guess it depends on what context you mean bullying, but certainly one-on-one playground bullying yeah. is about dominance and... Um, you know, children start competing for status as soon as they start learning how to play with other people. When they fight over who gets access to the toy, that's a symbolic status battle. And that's certainly true um, uh, in the context of bullying. There's a study that I cite in the book that looked out, uh, that looked, at, looked at why school children, um, um, you know, pre-adolescent school children tend to be bullied and ostracised from their social groups and it's very often when they, um, w- w- when they, when their behaviour or, or something about them makes them a threat to the status of that social group, when they embarrass people or make them feel uncomfortable, and and, and that kind of negative status kind of feels like it's leaking out into the, in, into into the other the people around them, they'll they'll start bullying them and ostracising them. So and and of course you know this kind of bullying is. Is always about status. It's always about taking somebody that's there and pushing them down there, and 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 with your kind of act of that's the dominance, you know, act with the act of dominance, you know, raising yourself up. So that ties then into what you're talking about, which is online, uh, and
1: uh, you know, cancel culture has become this very politicized word. But I actually think you know people will be tempted to think that cancel culture is what people who are right. Of center, let's say, say about what happens to them from people left of center. I, I sort of see it as a much more universal thing that's going on and the harassment and mobbing and bullying yeah. happens from everybody. So is that what's driving it? It's a bunch of people who you, you sort of hinted at it, don't have the ability to, to achieve status through competence, don't have the ability to achieve it through dominance, force, violence, etc. But here is this great tool. You know, you've got a Twitter account and you can go and harass a celebrity. What, you know, today it's Dave Chappelle, tomorrow it's yes. going to be someone else. Yeah. Is that what it's about? It's yeah. low status people achieving status at the expense of someone
2: famous it it, it is but 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 the only thing that that i'd say about that is that it is dominance behavior because dominance isn't just about physical violence it's about the threat of violence Mm. but it's also about the threat of ostracization you know we we don't dominance is about is about you know is partly about one-on-one physical competition but it's also about um competition with reputation and you know a person's reputation that's their kind of avatar that's their uh, you know what they're playing the status game with so if you attack someone's reputation, you're, you're attacking their identity. You're attacking the core of who they are and everything they've worked towards, the kind of locus of the meaning of their life. So, 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 so you know, it isn't violence when we attack reputation, but it's something, you know, close to it. it, it it's, a, it's a dreadful thing that we do. Mm. It's, it, 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 I, in the book, I, t- I, you know, I, I kind of explain that there's no pure games. There's no, there's no pure success game and pure virtue game. They're, they're kind of mixtures, always this called mixtures, um and i think kind of cancel culture and you know the worst of human behavior even up to and including genocide which i also write about is virtue dominance play it's virtue play because it's about you will follow the rules you will not insult our sacred beliefs you will not insult our sacred symbols and if you don't we will get you so that's that that's that dominance kind of virtue play And, and and it's fundamental it's human behavior you know we're very good at blaming You know, Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey for causing all these things, but they haven't caused it. They've just connected people together. And when you connect people together, they're going to play status games and
0: this kind of thing is going to happen. But now we've got the status game with virtue and then we destroy people whilst at the same time being hashtag be kind, (laughs) which to me is just the most mind blowing thing I've ever seen.
2: But, 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 but that's, again, it's just consistent with, you know, that, that's part of the storytelling brain. We have this conscious experience of life. And, and you know, in, in previous books, I've described the brain as a hero maker. It's very good at making us feel heroic and justifying all our, all our acts. And it's thought that the strongest bias of all is the moral bias. So, so the brain is very good at saying, you know, you know, fundamentally you're a good person and you're a better person than all these other people. Um, and, 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 and that's what the be kind thing is all about. That's people's brains doing what brains are supposed to do, which is tell a story about your own virtue and your own superiority whilst playing this you know, rather cynical status game kind of su- subconsciously. So, and, and that's not unique to the internet. You know, the, the, the Nazis thought they were on the side of
0: the good. The communists thought they were on the side of the good. That's just what brains do. And even when presented with objective facts, like you're literally ruining someone's career, yeah. you are you are impacting on their mental health. You are causing and creating suffering. But they deserve
1: it, right? That's the argument. They yeah, deserve
0: it. Yeah, exactly. So it's, that's exactly right. I mean,
2: you've got to kind of understand a bit how how the brain works. And, and, you know, one of the things that I write about kind of continually in my books, which because I think it's just extraordinary, is the fact that, you know, the brain is constructing a story constantly about the world. And that's literally, you know, information comes in from the world and um, it constructs this like storyscape for us to live in. And a lot of it is delusional. A lot, you know, it's kind of designed to, again, make us feel heroic and we're really, and it's really good at kind of being very, very shifty with, with, with the objective truth and twisting it and turning it to make us feel that we're heroic. And as I said you know, before, the Nazis thought they were the heroes of that story. They genuinely thought they were. And so did the communists. They genuinely thought they were. The communists thought they were, they said, we're punching up. They, you know, they're obviously not using our contemporary phrases, but they were punching up at the, you know, the bourgeoisie and the czarists and all this stuff. Um, and in the same way, the people online are convinced that they're punching up too. And they, 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 there's a chapter in the, status game that looks specifically at the culture wars and what I thought was interesting is when you look at the narratives of the left and the right you know the two sides of the culture war they both tell a story um, which is in part convincing about that they're punching up and so so the classic you know the the the, the kind of extreme left cancel culture people say they're punching up at you know at, you know at, 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 at essentially white people, especially white men, especially straight white men. And the argument is they've hoarded all the status, they've hoarded all the power, and it's not fair. And we're, and we're destroying this evil elite that, that doesn't deserve to be there. But if you look at the other side, the right-wing view, it's like, well, when they look up, they don't see straight white men. They see educated people. They, they see, you know, highly educated um, elite people. You know, people who went to kind of Ivy League universities and Oxbridge, people who were running the BBC and, and the New York Times. And and, and they're both ways of seeing the status game that have some validity to them. So, 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 uh, and I think that's when these stories become really dangerous because they have this kind of kernel of truth. But they're they're stories, they're not real. They're massively simplistic. It is true that historically in, in, in white dominated countries, white men have had an advantage, but it's definitely true now that if you've been to Oxford, Cambridge or an elite university, or you work at the BBC, you've got a massive advantage. Over an awful lot of straight white men who don't have those advantages. So, so, so the brain tells this sto- this heroic story, which is usually com- really simplistic, um, but it's never true. It's always much more complicated than the kind of warriors uh, will admit to. Let's
1: come back to the culture war in a second, sorry, Francis. I just want to, yeah. I just want to stick with the with the human society yeah. part of it yeah. first. So. Clearly, in our society now, if I were seeking to achieve higher status through physical force, that would be considered unacceptable. Yeah. So, societies have developed over time rules and regulations, unspoken and, and legislative, mm. about controlling the way that people play this game. Yeah, where are we now in terms of that? In terms of you know, how how do we uh, is this this nature of ours, which I, I doubt is ever going away, realistically, mm. right? How do we regulate that in a way that sort of uh, makes sense in modern society?
2: Well, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. I mean, because I think, you know, for, for, for tens of thousands of years, we've been, re- we've been regulating principally male violence. Mm. Yeah. I, I, and that, that's been going on for, 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 for thousands of years. And to the extent that we physically changed. You know, before, the psychologists call the process of self-domestication. We domesticated ourselves. We became much more feminized. We had you know, bigger eyes and we control the world much more by controlling other people, understanding how minds work and being able to manipulate them. Um, and so, and, and that's, that, that's why that we are, for, for a primate, um, within the people within our group, incredibly peaceful compared to even bonobos who are famously you know, a peaceful um, primate. We, we're much more peaceful than that. So it's, uh, where, where our aggression is is group versus group um but, but 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 you know we, we're much less good at regulating those other forms of aggression which, which are the forms uh, which both genders use um but but, but certainly you, you know uh, women use them every bit as much as men and that's bullying ostracization it's the reputation destruction forms of aggression which which which, which we don't really have the checks and balances there um at the moment and and, and i think that's what needs to happen you know, especially online, that 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 we need to evolve new norms that 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 are kind of against this kind of, you know, reputation-based dominance play. Do you think the problem there is, Will, that with physical aggression,
1: we are inevitably confronted by the consequences of it? The Nazis, who you mentioned, even Himmler wrote about how unpleasant it was to have to put all the Jews in gas chambers. Yeah. So you are physically confronted yeah. with that reality and it becomes impossible to... If you start asserting your physical dominance over me, you have to see me suffer, bleed, etc., cry, whatever it would be. Even though I would never cry. I'm not <laughs> sure. But you know what I mean? Whereas with this online stuff, there is that sort of windscreen effect where you're sitting in your car, someone else is in another car and you are in
2: a safe bubble... And you don't have to see them suffer. Yeah, you, you can, can do can whatever use, you, you want. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and that's a huge problem. And I also think it's a huge problem just, just that form of communication. Like one way of seeing social media is as a gossip network. And in, you know, in the book and in previous books, I've written about the importance of gossip to human social life. You know, gossip are the first forms of story. Um, and gossip was there, you know, it, gossip is universal, it, 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 it plays a crucial function in human social life and it's there to regulate it. So, so, so back in the days of the tribe, um, uh, you know, there was no police force, there was no judiciary, there was no prison system. So, so, so we controlled social behaviour by by gossiping. and if people got a bad reputation, they'd be punished, you know, with ostracization, you know, all, all of the ways we're familiar with today up to and including Execution. Uh, but, uh, and, but if the gossip was positive, this person did an amazing thing, they'd raise in status and become heroic. So it's an essential component of, uh, you know, we, we've all evolved to gossip. Children begin to do kind of tattletale forms of gossip almost as soon as they can talk, it, it's baked into us. And then you've you, you got to look at the grand sweep of human history. So, 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 so that's how we were regulating our societies for thousands of years. And then when we settled down and communities started growing to, so big that we couldn't, Know everybody personally, so we couldn't gossip about everybody individually. We invented the big God religions, and, and so religion is a gossip network, but God knows all the gossip, and you're going to get punished or rewarded after life. So, and, and, and it was the feeling that God was watching you that, that, that controlled your, you know, largely controlled your behavior. Um, and then you know, in our kind of post Nietzschean age, when now God is dead, journalism did that job, journalism became our gossip network. That's how we tattled about especially high-status people and, and, you know, moral outrage was raised and they will be punished. And, you know, we're living in a kind of post-journalistic age now and I've, I've lived and worked through it where, where the norms of journalism have just collapsed because of the internet. And social media is our new gossip network. And, and so, so, so it's not just this thing that people do, you know, for a laugh on their phones. The gossip network, is, as I said, is an essential component of human life. It plays a crucial role. And it's a pathological form of gossip network Because, you know, there are barely any consequences for spreading malicious gossip. Mm. I think back in the days of the tribe, you know, know, if you spread malicious gossip, you were going to get gossiped about Mm. and and, and bad things could happen to you. Um, You know, in the glory days of journalism, yes, of course, there were left-wing and right-wing newspapers, fine. But but there was still pressure on journalists to get it right, to get the truth. And if you didn't get the truth, you got a bad reputation or you worked for a crappy tabloid Mm. and everyone looked down their nose at you anyway. Um, but, but, But those norms just don't exist. exist on they're they're scarily hard to find in traditional journalism these days um, and and they barely exist on social media you know
0: and and not only do they not barely exist they they also exacerbate and encourage yes these worst tendencies in people that's the problem isn't it yeah
2: exactly everything you attach status to we're going to flop to it i mean in, in the book i talk about this status game that um anthropologists found on an island um in merconesia which is based on yams And the idea was whoever brought the biggest yam to the feast was declared number one in the feast. <laughs> and, and that was the thing, and he's raising status. And so what happened on the island was that it, it, it was a kind of a male game, this. All the men just became obsessed with growing yams, and they became amazing at growing yams. They would crawl out of their bed at two in the morning to go into their secret yam pit in the forest to tend to it and stroke it and feed it fertilizer. <laughs> and, and, and there were stories there of yams that were so big, it took 12 men to carry them into the feast on a special stretcher. So that's, that's humans. You know, if you attach status to something, we're going to do it, and we're going to do it big, and, and you're absolutely right. You know, these days you're attaching status to these extreme political beliefs. Um, you're attaching status to, to the ability to, to, to tear your kind of ideological enemies down. So that's what we're going to do, and that's what we're doing. So, 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 it's yeah, it's a it's a pathological gossip network that incentivizes this kind of virtue dominance form of status game. But
0: it's also made the status game worse. It's yeah. made it more toxic. Much more toxic. Yeah, I,
2: I, I, I absolutely has. I mean. One of the things that I write about again in the book is this idea of the moral panic. I kind of to kind of readdress what is a moral panic, and I and I look at the um, satanic panic in the 1980s as, as a form of moral panic. But actually, I think when you look at it from the status point of view, it's not really a moral panic. Mm. I call it a status gold rush because what you've got is this is this small group of therapists um, that that, that hiss upon this way of becoming incredibly rich, incredibly famous. And um, you know, interviewed on Oprah, um, hosted at big conferences, and um, uh, you know, interviewed by academics. Um, uh, a, a, and you know, perhaps more important than even the money and the fame is is that kind of story they're allowed to tell themselves that we're saving the world. You know, we're saving the world's children from the forces of evil. And so, what happened during that was that was that flocks of people were drawn to this satanic panic um, status game in which. Uh, you know the idea was that these therapists were, and, and police officers were seeking out secret satanic sex abusers um, uh, and you know and it was a disaster it spread throughout um, the US it came to the UK you know dozens of people had long prison sentences for doing things they couldn't possibly have done like you know throwing children at sharks and stitching their eyelids shut during mm. a kindergarten and then somehow returning the kids to their parents unharmed at the end of the day like mad stuff uh, and 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 uh, you know I think it makes much more sense when you see that I see the idea of a status gold rush that it wasn't a moral panic that was that I don't think that was driving the satanic panic it was a status gold rush all these people with ordinary lives just therapists just family experts suddenly became famous rich and Um, that they felt that they were saving the world from the forces of evil and I think that's what we see on social media too it's a it's a you know it's a status gold rush there are millions and millions of just ordinary people with ordinary lives who suddenly feel that they're fighting the good fight against the forces of darkness and you know we're going to tear down Dave Chappelle or or whoever it is or, or Kathleen Stock or whoever it is and 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 You know, you've got to understand that status is is an immeasurably valuable resource. It's a basic human need. If we don't feel that we have status, we become um, mentally unwell, depressed, even up to feeling suicidal if our status is taken away from us uh, in in a kind of dramatic way. We even become physically ill if we don't feel that we have sufficient status. So it's an immeasurably valuable resource. And what social media has given us, is enabled us to do, is, 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 is to gather that resource... Um, and in such a way that we have so you know we have more status in our online lives than we do in our real actual lives so that's really valuable to people and that's you know that's what their brains want their brains aren't particularly interested in in, in finding out the truth their brains are interested in how do i get status well and is
1: this why people are so fearful of humor and comedy because comedy is one of the most powerful ways to take status away from things when you mock something even playfully, you are taking away the significance from it. And we saw it, you know, the comedians I grew up watching in the in the 90s, there were the Bill Hickses, the George yeah. yeah, They went after religion because yeah. the religious right at that time had quite a lot of cultural significance and dominance. And these people were taking that away. And now you see it, the, when it's flipped and it's the far left that's got this... Uh, cultural dominance. They fear comedy. They they're terrified of it, and they're fighting against it because it takes away the significance and the status that they've tried to give to their beliefs. Is that why? That yeah, a sort of absolutely.
2: Thing? I mean, a basic you know a basic way that back in the days of the tribe that we would we, we, we would manage people's behavior, social behavior is if we were gossiping about them uh, and the gossip was bad, you'd begin by mockery and, hum- you know, a bit of mockery and humiliation. You know, that, 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 so that's, that's a, that, again, that's, a, that's an elemental kind of form of human behaviour. So, and it's a way of, it, so it's, it's a way of, of drawing people down. And that's exactly right. I grew up, you know, in the 90s. I'm, I'm a Gen Xer. I remember watching Bill Hicks on Channel 4 late one night and having my mind just blown. Mm. And, and, you know, I grew up in a Catholic family. And in those days, it was that, you know, especially in America, the Catholic right, that were dominating and, and judging people's moral behavior. And I was a big metal fan, and they were trying to ban all the records that I, that I liked. And it has flipped these days. It's the it's the you know I, I've always identified as a left wing person. I still do, but it's 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 the left that are doing that these days. It's and a it, section of the left. It's a, well, it's a section of the left. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, I don't think it's a as you, as you point out, it's a
0: coincidence that
2: that these are the people now that the
0: the comics are going after. And we talk about humiliation. You used a very powerful example of the power of humiliation when you were talking about, I forget his name. Elliot Rogers. Elliot Rogers. Yes, Elliot Rogers. And what happened to him, if you could go into that a little bit. Yeah, so, I mean, when I was
2: thinking about the book and whether whether there was a book in this, I kind of set myself a test. And that test was, okay, if you're going to argue that status is so important, then what happens when our status is taken away? It must be pretty bad. So, so, so you know, I, I started looking into that and the idea of humiliation, because, the, you know, one of the technical definitions of humiliation is it's, the, it's not only the removal of your status, it's the removal of your ability to claim status in the future. You're, you're, you're so... You're so down there that you're just gone, basically. Nobody wants to have anything to do with you ever again. And, and, and it turns out that that is a catastrophic thing for, 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 for humans to experience. If it's serious and it's, and it's chronic, it goes on and on and on. Once one researcher described um, humiliation as an annihilation of the self. And humiliation is, is found in the backgrounds of lots of serial killers, terrorists, honor killers, I mean, if you think, you know, it's implicated in genocide, the humiliation of the nation, or the racial group, and they, they fight back, um, so, so if you think about the very worst of human behavior, you'll find humiliation in there, so, so that, that to me was like, okay, this is, I think this is right about status, I think it is this important, and so I, I, I tell the story of Elliot Rodgers in some detail, because he's a, so he's a spree killer, he's one of these kind of incel spree killers, but before he, he died, um, he left, a, he uploaded to the internet a 108,000-word autobiography, which is um, what's called My Twisted World. Um, and it's an extraordinary, it's a truly extraordinary document. I mean, it, it, you know, it's chilling. Uh, but, but he's, it's fascinating because, you know, so in the book, uh, I say that the most dangerous people probably on earth are narcissistic people. So people who believe that they're entitled to high status. And they expect to be treated as if they're important, and they're humiliated. So when you humiliate a narcissist, it's it's bad because because they they're dropping down a hell of a long way. And 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 it, and if they're male, and if you're male, you're much more likely to respond with violence. Mm-hmm. That's another you know factor. So so grandiose, male, and humiliated are, are this kind of you know the, 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 these three kind of red flags. And, and Elliot Rogers was definitely an example of that. I mean, he, his book. Uh, is, is sort of greasy with its descriptions of his wonderfulness. He, he, he describes himself as a, as a beautiful gentleman and, and things like this and, and thinks he's gorgeous and wonderful and can't understand why we're not falling at his feet. Um, but, 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 but he's also unflinching in his depictions of, of how miserable his life was and how he was bullied and, and hated by, by everybody that he essentially he went to school with. Um, and after he did his spree killing, um, the narrative across the media, left and right, was that the cause of what he did was his obsession with the game World of Warcraft, um, and they said because it's a violent game and you're killing stuff, so that's you know makes sense, right? Um, but I argue in the book that that's actually not true. That, that actually World of Warcraft was his only source of status, and if you actually read his book, it's only when he stops playing World of Warcraft that he goes completely insane, uh, and so, so so he describes basically achieving the enormously statusful experience of, of achieving the kind of the top level of World of Warcraft. And when he's playing World of Warcraft, it's, he's not worrying about school. He's not worrying about girls and being popular. He, he's happy. Um, and then he finds out that the people, the, the friends who he's playing World of Warcraft with, he discovers that, they, that they've been meeting up in secret behind his back to play without him, which is just heartbreaking for him. Because, you know, and, and he describes playing the game with tears rolling down his face because he's so crushed by this realisation. So he stops playing. And literally the day he stops playing, he confides to his last remaining friend this bizarre vision he has of the world now, in which he 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 wants sex to be abolished completely. Because as far as he's concerned, um the, the, the problems of the of the world are the fault of women. Because women choose who to have sex with, and they keep choosing, you know, jock aggressive types, so that they keep procreating with these people and Uh, giving birth to more aggressive jock types. So his solution is to... He hasn't seen millennials, mate. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, this is pre, this is pre then. And so he he wants to wipe out all the women, um, uh, keep a few in in, in a lab um, to um, uh, artificially inseminate, to keep the... the, to keep, the, to keep the population going.
0: Well, at least he had a vision. Yeah, uh,
2: yeah. But, but, but if, so when I read that, so, so when you hear that, you just think that's mental, that's yeah. mentally ill. Yeah. Like, yeah. that is gone, yeah. right? Um, and um, it, it's about as misogynistic as you can get. It is, you can't really get many, much more misogynistic than want to annihilate all women. Um, but then when you look at that in the context of the Second World War, that is exactly the sort of story that the Nazis told about the world. When, when, the, when the German nation, which is a grandiose nation, you know, the most successful nation in continental Europe before the First World War, utterly humiliated by the Treaty of Versailles. Um, and, and that's the story that, uh, that, you know, it's not a nation of Germans because they weren't all Nazis, but, but that was the story that, that the Nazis told about the world, it was the Elliot Rogers story, but it's, instead of women, it was Jews. So when that kind of connected for me, I just thought that's that extraordinary because... I think it shows you that it's something innate in us. When we feel that our status has been unfairly taken from us, that's when we're, I think, our most irrational and our most aggressive. And you've very neatly brought us back to the culture war there because one of the
1: arguments that you laid out, and this is something I've been very concerned about for some time now, you you talked about how people on the right and the left have their own simplified versions of of what's happening and, and it makes perfect sense, but... Particularly the far left one is Mm. the one that troubles me. Um, And the reason it troubles me more is that the narrative of the far left, as you put it yourself, is that there's this group of people who've been historically very privileged. They've got all the advantages. They've had hoarded all the status. And we must now humiliate them. Mm. I mean, that is the narrative, right? Yeah. So you've got a very large group of people. Uh, who are, as you've said, for physiological and biological reasons, are much more prone to violence than other than other groups. Men. They are the vast majority of society. Uh, white people in, mm. in in the in, in, in this the, UK. Country, in the yeah. UK certainly, and in America. Uh, and you have a a driven campaign that, at least to me, seems like that is supported by media organisations, by institutions of government, by uh, authorities, the police, the healthcare, everywhere, there seems to be that. It, it, it's at least allowing that to happen, right, those systems. Now, given what you've said,
2: to me, that seems a very dangerous game to be playing. It is. A, I think it is a very dangerous game to be playing. And you can see a little bit of it in the Trump and Brexit events of 2016. You know, I think it's 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 been it's been commented before. It's not news that that, that that lots of the people that voted for those things were white working class and low middle class people, whose living standards have declined in in the last few decades, but also their, their sense of status has declined. Yeah. Mm. You know, you know, there used to be respect in being a working class person, um, and now that you know the media decries them as you know deplorables and trailer trash and. You know, you've got Labour politicians tweeting Union Jacks and going, "Ugh!" You know, and I think it's true that Trump and Brexit was a reaction against that. It was like, "No, you fuckers! You know, you've got to stop treating us like this." And and that's that's their story of you're the educated elite who you're looking down looking down your noses at us. And there's a there's a definite truth to that. And I, and I and I do I I do worry about this, and I do think it's true that there's that there's a generation of young men that are being raised today in canada the us and the uk who are being raised in in, in, in a world in which men are, white men are just bad they're responsible for all the bad things in the, in the world and the morally correct thing to do is to put them to the back of every queue um and to not give them any of the important jobs and you know and and to hold them back and that's dangerous and and because because because, because what's going to happen well one of two things you know, the, the, either they're going to internalise those ideas and, and just suffer terrible self-esteem uh, and, and depression, thinking, I'm a white man, I'm terrible, I'm awful, I'm a disaster, I need to just step back and, and let everyone else have a life and, and not me. Or more likely, they're going to become really fucking angry <laughs> and they're going to push back. And, you know, I, 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 I do think we're going to be seeing that increasingly. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm in this kind of small world of publishing, There was a very interesting story that was published in The Observer um, a few weeks ago that talks about the kind of the female domination of the publishing world. And I think it's absolutely true that's happening. Um, The bookseller, the trade trade paper of the book industry um, a few months ago, two months ago, published their um, list of the rising stars of the book industry. And somebody worked out they were 85% female. And I don't know if that's true or not exactly, but if you look at that cover of the bookseller magazine, it's Hunt the White Man. I mean, I think there's one there in this huge constellation of faces. And, that, and no one was talked about that. It was just accepted as this is the future. You know, so if you're a young white man that, 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 that loves reading and loves publishing and is desperate to become a publisher, and you see that, how are you going to react? And I, and I just think if it continues, I think it's going to continue because no one's pushing back against this. Y- you are, I think, in a few years going to see the resurgence of a, of a significant men's rights movement. I mean, at the moment, the men's rights movement is a joke because people mm. just laugh at it, um, you know, for, often for good reason. But I, I think it's going to stop being a joke, uh, you know, at some point in in the coming years.
0: Because what it needs, that movement, is someone charismatic, yeah, someone to come in, someone who can, you know, Get people together. Someone who can mobilise a group, and then once that happens, you know, it's ready to explode, isn't it? It is ready to explode, and and, and you know, I don't want to say that
2: uh, Jordan Peterson was was you know, you know, I, I, yeah, I mean, he, he 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 wasn't a men's rights activist. I don't think in in that sense. But but I think what Jordan Peterson did show was two things. One was, as you say, that, that there's a huge feeling out there that that, that that you know, men absolutely flocked to him. And the other thing I thought about the Jordan Peterson kind of phenomenon was that, was that in my journalistic career, I've written, I've written about men's issues. I've written about male suicide. I've written about male survivors of sexual violence. And, and so, you know, I've thought a lot about male pain. And, um, you know, in, in my corner of the world, a left-wing corner of the world, a very kind of feminist kind of focused corner of the world, the idea of male pain is something to be laughed at. It's like, are you joking? It's ridiculous. I mean, you don't talk about it. You know, it's a kind of thing to be mocked. And I think you know. I think what was fascinating about Jordan Peterson was that he he actually understood male pain. You know, he said, I, "I know that you're hurting, and I understand that you're hurting, and I feel it, and I care." And and that was just, you know, electric. And and, and so it was a you know when he was at his peak, um, before he got sick, it, it was extraordinary to see. And and I th- and I think what he did was he just pricked at that uh, 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 that uh, that growing feeling of upset that there is in the kind of in the masculine world at the moment because we're in this weird situation where you're not supposed to talk about it because if you talk about it you're the enemy but it's there but know? the other thing jordan did which i
1: thought was very important is that he emphasized for men and women because yeah. his message resonates with the people of uh, I nearly said of all genders, fucking
0: hell. <laughs> <laughs> all 960 yes. Yes. His
1: message resonated with them. My point was that he forced people to understand that in a society with, that we live in now, competing on dominance and competing on virtue are not really routes to happiness the best way to compete and be happy is to compete on competence. Yeah. That's the point that I think he always emphasized, which is why I I was very frustrated at the reaction to Jordan from people of the persuasion that you were yeah. describing earlier because I don't think he was saying uh, or trying to lead a movement of men to recapture their primitive <laughs> state <laughs> no, and yeah. go in. What he was saying is if you want status in a society that, yes, looks down on you at the moment, the way to achieve status is competence. Be better. Yeah. Be better. Take responsibility. Yeah. Achieve more. Create more. Show the world that what you're doing is valuable and the world will reward you for it. That's what he was saying. And to me, the reaction to Jordan Peterson was so disappointing precisely because of that because I see see him – as an agent of detoxifying yeah. all of that anger and all of that unpleasantness that you refer to. But instead, he was treated as being the very head of that yes, movement. Yeah. And I just thought it was such a catastrophic misinterpretation of it. Yeah, his I, views. I, don't,
2: I don't think I've ever seen a public figure so misunderstood as Sean Peterson, I have right. to say. I mean, I, I became aware of him. Again, because of my interest in the storytelling brain, and my my book before the status game was the science of storytelling, and I was researching that, uh, and and so I came upon his videos, which talks about the psychology of storytelling, and this was kind of before he, you know, the C sixteen stuff, uh, and so when all that happened, I just thought this isn't this. I've is, not seen any. I've watched all the hours of his videos, <laughs> and I've not seen any of this kind of weird, you know, uh, version of Jordan Peterson that I'm now being told. Um, um, is there, and I, and I completely agree. I mean, you know, I, in the in the book, I take a sort of broader view and tell kind of the history of the world from the point of view of the of the status game, and and I talk about the idea of modernity modernity is when the emphasis shifted from playing virtue games to success games. That, that's what that's about. So before the Industrial Revolution, before the um, Enlightenment, um, most of us were playing virtue games. It was, it was honor, duty, religion, stay in your lane, be respectful to your superiors. Um, you know, that was life for, for centuries. Yeah. And then it all changed, you know, um, post-Industrial Revolution. And we, started, we had started specifically attaching success to things like discovering useful knowledge, um, uh, making things more efficient, creating inventions, be- you know, bigger, better, faster, more. And, you know, like with the Yams, when you do that, we're going to do it. Wherever there's status, we're going to flock to that thing. And, and so, so, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, it's, it's counterintuitive. But in the book, I argue that if you want to, if you really want to save the world, if you want to do good in the world, if you really want to be a virtuous person, actually you should play a success game because success games are the things that have, you know, save billions of lives through vaccinations. Success games have lifted billions of people above the poverty line. It's people, you know, solving problems that have done those things, not people in churches, not royal families, which is another kind of form of of kind of virtue game. Um, uh, So, yeah, you know, it's playing those success games um, that, that I think is is, is the real answer, the, re- the real way to do good in the world.
0: But isn't the problem as well, I'm such a negative bastard, isn't the problem as well <laughs> that virtue games are just much easier to play than success games? It's easier to yes. write a tweet going, yeah. Dave Chappelle is a transphobe and he should be castrated for trans rights, right, okay? It's far easier to write that tweet than it is to, to go... To actually castrate him. Yeah. Or
2: to beat Dave <laughs> Chappelle. To, yeah, or, to,
0: or number one, to beat Dave Chappelle yeah. or... To go to university, to study, to, to study biochemistry, and then go on and do virology and then become a virologist and then, and then work in whatever field it might be. That is far more difficult. It requires discipline, hard work, years of study. 100 percent
2: Yeah, I mean, virtue is the easiest form of status to, 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 to gain. And again, you know, write about that in the book. And, 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 I, and I think that's also why social media is so toxic, because all you've got to do is to make yourself feel a bit better, is to Retweet somebody with a sneery little comment, and, and all your followers go, "Yeah, yeah," and you feel good about yourself. So it's so easy. It's like popcorn status, you know. You're just shoveling it down your neck. Um, and, and yeah, comp- but competence is really hard. It's difficult to become good at something. Um, um, but but you know, uh, and again, uh, as somebody that's instinctively left wing. That, that was kind of, that was took me a while to get there because as, as a left-wing person, you're kind of drawn to this virtue stuff about the, to the campaigners and the, and, and the people who, who, who you feel are motivated purely by virtue. But, but it, it's not really true. I mean, those people are important. They need to be part of the mix. But, but it's, the, it, it's the competence people that really are saving the world. Hey, Constantine, do you love trigonometry? Of course. Incredible
1: interviews, hilarious live streams, hard-hitting satire plus my handsome
0: jawline whatever takes away from your hairline but if you do love trigonometry and you want to support us there's only one place to do that And that's on Locals.
1: Yes, Locals is a brilliant platform that has been incredibly supportive to our show and
0: other problematic creators. The great thing about Locals is that it's a community for people who love trigonometry.
1: That's right, it's a place for you to hang out with like-minded people,
0: share thoughts, memes, and discuss the show. You can enjoy it for free but it also gives you the option of supporting us for as little as $7 a month. And if you want to give more,
1: you can. We have incredible rewards for our higher tier supporters as well. We've got everything from
0: mugs, monthly group calls, and one-on-two chats with me and KK. Get
1: in. Join our community by hitting the link in the description and the pinned comment below.
0: See you there, guys.
1: Well, one of the things you've referred to a number of times now is left and right, and I've actually tried to steer this conversation as much from away from that as possible because I think the moment anything becomes about politics, it yeah. makes it more difficult for people sure. to, to hear. So you as a as a as an instinctively left wing person, I actually I think both from Francis are in many ways as well, but what is the difference between left and right on these issues? Because it's often said that people on the right think that people on the left are wrong, and people on the left think that people on the right are evil. <laughs> that, that's, that that argument is often made, but I, I don't know that that how I don't too- know.
2: I think that's a bit simplistic. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think you, you haven't got to go back very far in history to see right wing people viewing left wing people exactly as, as evil. You know, I, I think because they are no, I, 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 <laughs> I, you know, I think that you know, in in the kind of most stupid form of commentary. Um, you see, you know, right-wing people just assuming all left-wing people are basically communists (laughs) and left-wing people seeing all the right-wing people are basically Nazis and, of course, you know... What I'm
1: getting at is there a difference because I think it would be fair to say that left people prioritise emotional experiences often more than people on the right, certain parts of the right, hmm. maybe. So uh, not offending people is more of a sacred value on the left at the moment at least, yeah. than, than it is on the right. Although, as we talked about earlier, 30 years ago, not offending people was yeah, very much a right-wing I mean, thing. Yeah, that's
2: right. I mean, it, it just depends. I mean, in, so, so it, it, for these exact reasons, I, I try to take it away from left and right as much as possible yeah. in the book. And I came across this, across this really useful concept. Um, a, a, the, 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 the psychologist most known for it is Professor Michelle Gelfand, uh, an American psychologist. And, and she writes about tightness versus looseness. And she writes about it in, in the context of cultures, um, but I expand that to groups, to games uh, that we play. And, and so, uh, you know, uh, it's fascinating because she says that the, 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 there, are, there are tight cultures in the world who are kind of what she calls rule makers, that they're all about the rules and being punctual and doing things correctly. So Germany is relatively tight. The UK is relatively loose. The northern states of America are relatively loose. The southern states are re- relatively tight. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the tighter that you are, um, the more um, conformist you are, the, the, the more hostile you are to outsiders. Um, I, th- I think it's true to say that the more likely you are to kind of fall for the kind of wild stories of your group. So, so the southern states of America, of course, more, much more religious than the northern states, much more kind of a- 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 atheistic. Um, uh, and, you know, she's got some extraordinary statistics, you know, even down to the things like the trains run on time better in, 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 in tight cultures. Well, we, we knew that. From yeah. that. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but also, like, when you look at the, cl- the clocks in public spaces are much more likely to be in sync in a tight co- country. Mm, yeah. But, but, but you can apply that to groups, too. And in the book I do, and I, and I write about the kind of the, the tightest form of the very tightest form of a status game is a cult. And, and so, 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 so what a cult is, is we are your only group. We are your only source of status. No other f- forms apply. Um, we are your only identity. And that's why they get you to cut off contact with friends and relatives and all that other stuff, because that's it. And we're going to give you a very precise set of rules to follow. And if you follow this very precise set of rules, you're going to have amazing status. So, you know, the famous, most, the most obvious example is Scientology. But because I'm scared of them, I talk in the book about the Heaven's Gate cult and the heaven's gate cult with things like you literally telling you that you take your vitamins every day at 7:22 telling you how much toothpaste you can have on your toothbrush and how much uh, how much water you can have in your bath so that's the tightest form of, of, of tightest form of game and then you can loosen it out and you can see well you know political groups like the, like political groups can be tight and loose. And I, and I think left and right, the ones that are going after each other, they're tight groups. They're, they're, they're living a tight world. They're playing a tight game, which is about conformity and hostility to um, outsiders. Uh, yes, yeah, so it's, 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 I, I thought that was useful partly because it takes it away from left and right. And you can see throughout history, left and right, that, you know, things change as you, as you move through, as events change. I mean, change. look at now, you talk about the southern
1: states and the northern states and whatever being tight and loose, but look at covid Actually, the yeah. democratic states have been much stricter in terms of vaccine yeah. passports, vaccine mandates, all of that. so I guess what what I'm hearing out of you is it, it flips over time and it changes depending on maybe who's got the physical power, the cultural power or whatever
2: yeah I mean a group, yeah I, I guess groups can can change in, in terms of tightness and looseness, but but, but it, it, it all depends on 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 who, who whose rules that you're following. You couldn't necessarily say that the, the tight southern states are looser because they're not following rule, following the mask rules. It's just that they're following their own rules. That it's their internal rules, which are saying we, we are liberty, freedom-loving people, we don't care about the government. So, it's, so they're still conforming to rules, but it's their own particular rules that they're conforming to. And certainly you're seeing very aggressive um, um, uh, anti-mask people in the southern states of, of the US. Um, you can see some of the behaviour the kind of the anti-vaxxer communities, y- you know, um, you're also seeing very aggressive behavior in yes. the pro mask and yeah, the pro yes. vaccine. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. And and they're, they're going to be tight people too playing a tight game. Yeah. And 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 that's what unites them is their tightness. It's 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 their inability to deal with other people not following their rules. Mm-hmm. Right. And 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 their exactly. compulsion to kind of it, it kind of police those rules. So again it's not a left or a right or a vax or anti-vax it's it's how tight you are compared
0: to how loose you are. And how do we get away from that? How do we get away from those extremes to a world that is more balanced when I personally feel that we've become more extreme?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, in the book, I write about um, this. I, I think what's really important is, is, is that we play many games for an individual. So, so, so as I said, you know, like, like, like the most pathological way of living your, living your life is in a cult. Mm -hmm. And that's dangerous not only because it makes you very vulnerable to very strongly irrational beliefs, but also what happens if you're kicked out of the cult or the cult collapses. That's your whole identity. Everything that you've ever worked towards, you know, goes away. Um, uh, So in the book, I write about sort of playing a hierarchy of games, this idea that so we know that people with a variety of identities tend to be happier and healthier Because they've got, it's like a hedging. They're they're hedging their status. So they've got, you know, you've 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 got lots of different ways of earning status. You know, I'm interested in politics. I've got this hobby of building, I know rockets or whatever, whatever whatever you're doing. I love I love architecture. I've got my job. I I, I like to be a good parent. There's lots of different ways that you can feel good about yourself and feel feel statusful. And I think that's that's the that's the maximally healthy kind of psychological lifestyle and so 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 i think on the individual level i i think that's what we should be trying to do playing this kind of hierarchy of games where you've got one main game because competence is hard as we've been saying and you need something to focus on but also hedging it so 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 that you haven't got all your all your eggs in that kind of um one basket but i think societally you know i i i you know I, i think it's I think it's happening slowly I, th- I think slowly we are going to see new norms you know new, new kind of cultural status game rules that that, that, that are start sort of turning against that kind of cancel culture narrative mm. you know I think at the moment you're seeing although he's wobbling the Netflix guy you know Netflix very st- has the, 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 the head By of By the Netflix, time this goes out yeah. <laughs> the, the company could have gone bust <laughs> yeah. Chappelle could have been you know like, like, hand drawn and quartered yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah and, and so you are seeing you know glimmers of because uh, uh, I, th- I think what I think what the problem has been. Is I we've seen an absolute failure of leadership. I think we've seen institutions and leaders completely fold uh, because it's dreadful. It, it's it's terrifying. The idea that you're going to be that you or the company that you lead or the organisation that you lead is going to be the target of a cancel culture mob and your personal reputation and the reputation of all the people that you care about is at risk is terrifying. So it's, so it's quite glib to say oh they're just a bunch of cowards. But I can understand the cowardice. You know I'm not saying I'd be any better if I was if I was there heading up a university or a big corporation. But but, uh, but but I think what's going to hopefully going to happen is is going to be that 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 thing where the more people stand up to this and get away with it and actually earn status by getting away with it, earn mm. respect and esteem by by standing up for their stuff and going no, we're not having this. We're not going to allow uh, you know our team to be treated like this. And the more leaders see other leaders achieving that, I, th- I think slowly you're going to see finally these institutions sort of standing up to this, you know, this small minority of people who are often dominating the narrative at the moment. And coming back to uh, just because we're sort of in the advice for people
1: Mm -hmm. phase of the conversation, uh, one of the things that interests me the most out of what you were talking about as someone who's, you know, uh, I've been extraordinarily wealthy. Uh, When my father spent a few years being very wealthy for a very short period of time, uh, we lived in a, in a former Soviet boss's mansion, Whoa. Uh, which, which had, you know, hectares of land around the mansion and servants, all, all of that crazy stuff. And then within 10 years, I was sleeping in a park in Edinburgh with nowhere to live and no money to pay wow. rent and whatever. So I've been up and down. Wow. Uh, and I think actually, while my experience may sound extreme, most people have been up and down in their life. All of us have been, quote unquote, down and out. Almost everybody. Almost everybody's had the experience of being bullied, of being yeah. humiliated, of yeah. loss of status, of loss of future. The loss of the future is such a terrifying thing to anyone who's ever felt like, I don't have a future that I thought I had. It, it's horrific. How does one as an individual deal with constructively loss of status, humiliation, finding yourself in a position where you feel like you have no future? How How do you rebuild yourself? Because as you talked about, and Jordan Peterson has talked about this, physically, physiologically, that has an impact, right? Mm. But since it's something that we're all going to experience, there has to be a way to get yourself out of that situation. How do you do that?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's easier said than done, obviously, because, you know, obviously, status is, is incredibly important. When we lose it, we really genuinely suffer. Uh, and and in, in, the, in the book, I talk about this, kind of, this, this idea of depression, which is you know, often depression comes from this loss of status, this feeling that I don't have any status and I can't think of a way to get it. And you kind of scuttle back to the safety of the cave and you kind of protect yourself by not taking part in society and not trying anymore. And, and, and I think that's the danger, is, is that back of the cave kind of feeling. Because I, because I think, you know, the good thing about human life, especially modern human life in the, in the West... Um, it, it is that we're surrounded by status games that we that we can choose to play. There are opportunities everywhere to earn status, and, and you know we talk a lot about success games, but virtue games can also be really good. You know, you, you can become a meditator, which is a kind of virtuous thing. You can, you know, become a religious person if, if that's if that's the way that your kind of brain is leading you. So, so, so I think it's getting over that, trying to pull yourself out of the back of the cave and think if I can't restore my status in this particular game from which I've been excluded, what other games can I, can can I, you know, can I, can I, choose to play? You know, you you could volunteer for the Samaritans and, and, you know, literally help save people's lives. That's, that's, that's virtue play. Um, But you you could do that tomorrow. (laughs) You know, that if you, if you can do that, that surely is an amazing um, source of potential status for for, for somebody. So so, so, yeah, I I, I think, I I think that's really the answer. It's just, pulling yourself out of the, the cave as hard as that is, as bloody painful as that is, and, and, and as much courage as that
0: takes, and, and getting out there and just trying to find another game to play. And that is a wonderful place to finish the interview. On an upbeat note as well, World. Um, but It's brilliant. Before we do, a couple of uh, questions for our local supporters. Our final question is always, what's the one thing we're not talking about, but we really should be?
2: I've already touched on it in the chat, actually, but I've been thinking more and more about the coming, the return of the men's rights movement. You know, I really think it's coming. I I think it's coming and it's going to be serious this time and it's going to be people younger than us um, when they're hitting. You know, it's the people who are maybe 13, 14 now when they get 18, 19 and and they're going into this world and and if they're still being treated like the enemy and, and if it still feels like, especially the professional world, I mean, the arts world that I live in, if it still feels like it's hostile to young white men, I, I, I think I, I think it's going to come out of the realm of the kind of incel Joker, the men's rights movement, and it's going to start becoming a, a serious a serious force. So I, I think that's that that's the thing that that if we're not talking about it now, I think we are going to be talking about it
0: soon. And we just went depressing again. Sorry. Right? <laughs> right. right. Well, that's why, I, like
1: we, we talked about Jordan Peterson. I think that's why his message and the message that other people like him try to send out is is very very important, which is. Find the right game. Yeah. Because, you know, even even in dating, right, pe- you know, young men complain that, oh, most young women are woke and all. Yeah, sure they are, but they still <laughs> want a man who's, who's going to know how to, whatever it is, bleed the radiator, <laughs> take out the rubbish. They still want that yeah. subconsciously because that's that's how we're wired. So if you are a man who is competent, you're going to be desirable one way or another. Yeah. So if you work on your competence, yeah. you don't need to be angry. You're going to be rewarded for that, you know. Uh, and I just think that's such an important message. And I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I hope that if that sort of movement starts to emerge, then it has the right people in place who, rather than harnessing that anger and taking it in a negative direction, can take those men, young yeah. men, and point them towards the, thing that, the things that have always made men successful.
2: Yeah, I mean, th- I think that's right. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I, my wife is a, is a women's magazine editor. She was editor of Cosmo. She's now editor of Elle. And I, and I think she's a, she, she's a great embodiment of the positive form of feminism which is not about she's not about bringing men down attacking men going on about the patriarchy she's about empowering and encouraging women saying Correct. how can we help women be be amazing it's all positive and, and and she's found great success in the world in the magazine world by you know she, she's found that when when you put that message rather than the negative message in magazines people buy the magazines more yeah. that's what women want you know people want to feel I'm going to have status, you know, an optimistic, positive message will respond to that much more. And I think you're absolutely right that, 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 that if, this, if a new men's movement does emerge, it's really important that it just doesn't become a, become a mirror of the worst forms of feminism, which is just, you know, man-hating, negative, unfair portrayals of what, of what men are and this kind of paranoid view of, of the world, because that could easily happen, that kind of, you know, incel-light kind of thing. Um, much better is is is, is the vision that, that that I suspect Jordan Peterson would endorse, which is actually you know what? How can we just make? How can we encourage men to get out of that negative space and not be paranoid and, and not become misogynists and become better men, you know, more competent, stronger, more courageous, and not be ashamed of those. Um, you know, th- those qualities which are kind of, you know, traditionally associated with masculinity. There we go. Made it positive again.
1: Boom. Boom. Yes. <laughs> all right, everybody, make sure you get the status game. We barely touched on many of the things that you've covered in here, so make sure you grab that. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. We're going to do a couple of questions for our locals, but thank you for being here. Pleasure. And thank you all for watching and listening at home. We'll see you very
0: soon with another brilliant interview like this one. or our And they always go out at 7pm UK time, 2pm Eastern Standard. Or for those of you who like your Trigonometry on the go, it's also available as a podcast. Take care and see you soon, guys. We hope you've enjoyed this incredible interview. Remember to subscribe and hit the bell button so that you never miss another fantastic episode.
1: And if you believe that the work we do here at Trigonometry is important, support us by joining our locals community using the link below.